This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 8th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. This weekend, the Cato Institute kicked off its 40-year anniversary with a series of events. To begin those series of events, we started with a brief history of some of the challenges and triumphs of the Cato Institute over the last four decades. Joining me, Cato's David Bowes, Ian Vasquez, and Roger Pallon. Welcome to Cato 40. I didn't know I was going to get the first words here, but that's, that's how it goes sometimes. Uh, t- today we're recording a live Cato Daily podcast, which is uh, so a bigger audience than I'm used to having in the room. Um, and we're going to talk about sort of the background of Cato, what opportunities were identified in its creation, sort of some of the challenges that Cato has faced over the years, and uh, hopefully uh, provide uh, sort of a roadmap of, of where Cato's been and uh, hopefully a little bit of where it's going. So I'm going to introduce our uh, esteemed panel here with, I think, a combined 200 years of experience at the Cato Institute, something like that. Something like that. Uh, David Bowes, uh, who you all know, is executive vice president of the Cato Institute. He is, that I, I like to say, the brand manager of the Cato Institute, making sure that the editorial standards of the Cato Institute are observed across our uh, various publications uh, and media. He has, as any good editor does, instilled a deep visceral fear in Cato staff of error on errors of logic, of spelling, of typography, and good manners. Uh, I spoke to John Mackey recently, the CEO of Whole Foods, and I asked him, what is the most impactful thing that the Cato Institute uh, has ever put out? And he said it was David Bose's most recent book, The Libertarian Mind. And then Mackey followed up with, I don't think David believed me when I told him that. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, Libertarian Mind is, is, is definitely the most up-to-date statement <clears throat> on what it means to think like a libertarian. Uh, moving on, Roger Pallon is Vice President for Legal Affairs here at the, at the Cato Institute, uh, and uh, he directs the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. He oversees the publication each year of the Cato Supreme Court Review, which is both the fastest and best review of the most recent Supreme Court uh, term. And we'll talk with Roger a bit about the changing conversation uh, about and within the judiciary. And if you haven't read it, uh, perhaps Roger's most well-known piece of writing is the essay that he puts, he has at the very beginning of every Cato uh, pocket constitution, which has been printed, give or take, about six million times. Uh, Ian Vasquez directs the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He assembles conferences in various parts of the world uh, and in countries where the regime is less friendly to the ideas of liberty than uh, they are here in the United States. Uh, Most recently, he is the co-author of the Human Freedom Index, which is a detailed analysis of various dimensions of freedom around the world, encompassing more than just economic and political freedom. So gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for joining me today at this uh, esteemed event. So David, I want to start with you. What was the opportunity uh, that was identified uh, in creating the Cato Institute? What I did, Charles Koch and, and Ed Crane wanted to put this thing together. What was the opportunity that they identified? Well, I wasn't actually there then, but as I've heard it, um, Ed Crane spent uh, a year in Washington in uh, 1976, and he thought that the Brookings Institution and the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, seemed to have a lot of influence for relatively modest budgets. And uh, so after that year, uh, when he was heading back to San Francisco, where he had lived and wanted to live, uh, he told Charles Koch there ought to be uh, a think tank in Washington reflecting and presenting libertarian ideas, the ideas of the American Revolution, and there's not one, and you should fund one, and it needs to be in Washington, and since I have no intention of living in Washington, you have to get somebody else to run it, and Charles said, well, you're gonna run it, and if you wanna run it in San Francisco, then you can. Uh, So they did that. Um, The context of the time, of course, is those of you who are about my age, or older, certainly, um, will remember that the context of those days was two fundamental facts about politics and government. One, 
communism controls half the world. There's an iron curtain down the middle of the world. And two, the Democrats control Congress always and forever, although Republicans sometimes win presidential races. In that particular era of the mid-1970s, we were dealing with Vietnam, Watergate, stagflation, really disastrous outcomes of what the government had been doing, which was either a sign of the beginning of the end, which is what some people like Henry Kissinger and Pat Moynihan thought, or an opportunity that it couldn't get much worse, it's time for a rebirth of libertarian ideas. So um, Ed Crane and Charles Koch and Murray Rothbard was involved in the beginning and a few other people on the board decided now is the time to start a libertarian think tank and it did start in San Francisco and it was a little more academically oriented at the time. A uh, lot of sending speakers to college campuses, uh, running an academic journal called Literature of Liberty and over the next four years or so it took on its modern form of we're going to focus on public policy. We're not going to have a public affairs magazine. We're not going to have an academic journal. Um, and we're also going to move to Washington. So how dramatically different were the uh, presentations or the arguments presented by the Cato Institute to what was out there at the time? Well, I mean, they were pretty different. I would say that until very recently, there had not been much in the way of libertarian analysis being presented. Really, the 1970s is when these ideas that were rooted in the American <coughs> Revolution, in abolitionism, um, in the Austrian in Chicago economists, and so on, were there, but were sort of coming together as an intellectual movement and a little bit of a political movement. Um, so nothing like that had really been offered, I think. And one of our theories then was that there are probably a lot of scholars out there at universities who are more radical than there's any market for them to be. And so if we say we would like fundamental critiques of what's going wrong in Washington, um, what's wrong with American foreign policy, domestic policy, there will be people who will want to supply those. And I think that was true. I think we did find that and we were able to give a platform to scholars like Richard Epstein and Earl Ravidal, who up until then had been uh, respected within their academic discipline, but not well known beyond that. Also some younger economists. Interestingly, one of the changes, maybe you want to save this for later, but one of the changes is these days, there are so many markets for free market economic analysis that we have to compete in a much tougher market than we used to. Is there some sort of law we could get passed to maybe deal with something like that? <laughs> well, I think if we said that, you know, organizations advancing free market economics that had been in existence uh, since on or before January 1st, so, so 1977. So we would be grandfathered right. in. That would be and everybody idea. else, well, go pound sand. Um, uh, so I, I want to move on to Roger a little bit and open this discussion up a little more. Roger, what did you know about the Cato Institute before you were hired? Well, I knew that it was a think tank, but not much more. And the reason is because, like so many people who came along in the era in which I did, um, we gradually learned about the institutions on our side, uh, sort of through serendipity. The, um, the Institute for Humane Studies, uh, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, conservatism and libertarianism were not nearly as defined at that era of the 60s and the 70s as they came uh, over time to be. And so uh, when I was uh, at the University of Chicago doing my uh, graduate work, working on my doctorate there, um, I uh, would attend such uh, organizations as the Philadelphia Society, uh, where, uh, which is largely, it was conservative and libertarian, um, Everyone from Russell Kirk to Milton Friedman belonged to it. And uh, then Leonard Liggio and Davis Keeler of the Institute for Humane Studies uh, visited and heard me uh, mouthing off, which I am inclined to do from time to time, during the Q&A periods and uh, introduced themselves to me. And that's how I discovered the Institute for Humane Studies. This was 19... 74. Now, Cato didn't get started till 77. But through IAHS, which then put me on the speaking circuit, there being very few academic jobs at that time, 
my wife, Juliana, who's here, was also doing her doctorate in philosophy at the University of Chicago. We went out into the academic world and bounced around several places uh, during that uh, very difficult period. Um, and during that period, the late 70s, we learned about Cato. We were out at the Hoover Institution in 79 and 80. And that's my first exposure to Cato Inquiry magazine. David will remember that, I expect. Um, then when I joined the Reagan administration in 81, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Cato moved to Washington, and I started going to some of their programs. And so that's how I first learned about it. But uh, with respect to the work that I was doing in philosophy of law, uh, there, through IHS, the people at Cato, in particular, Jim Dorn and Ed Crane learned about my work. And in 1983, I called up Jim and said, you guys need to put together a conference on economic liberties and the judiciary. And so he set up a lunch with Ed. The three of us sat down, and on the back of a paper napkin, I sketched out the program for that conference. Mm -hmm. A year later, Cato ran it. It opened with a spirited debate between then-Judge Antonin Scalia and Richard Epstein over the proper role of the judge in protecting economic liberty. The, the fur flew in that debate. Uh, AEI then published <clears throat> it a year later as a pamphlet. Cato published it, the whole proceedings of the conference, in the Cato Journal. And that was the first introduction in Washington of the idea that there is a third way, a third school between, or rather above, the then two dominant schools, liberal judicial activism, conservative judicial restraint. That was the first introduction of this idea in Washington, and it took off from there, culminating, one could say, in the creation of the Center for Constitutional Studies in uh, early 1989. And since, we, and since then, we've seen that idea, this... Uh, uh, in the insufficiency of both judicial activism and restraint uh, has, I mean, I've, I see it everywhere. Yes. Uh, our, our theme could be reduced to a pox on both your houses. And we did indeed start um, uh, in 1987, Bernie Segan, who was out at the University of San Diego and who had been the author of the 1980 book, Economic Liberties in the Constitution. He and I spoke at an ABA, American Bar Association, Bicentennial of the Constitution program out in San Francisco. Uh, then in 1991, Randy Barnett and I spoke at a Bicentennial of the Bill of Rights program uh, in, uh, in another uh, ABA convention. Uh, and through these methods, bringing speakers in, judges, and so forth, we have gradually changed the debate. Indeed, in the last two decades, it is the uh, liberal uh, camp that is calling uh, the conservative justices that came with Reagan and thereafter judicial activists. And what we were calling for was not the old liberal judicial activism, but judicial engagement namely enforcing the Constitution's doctrine of enumerated powers on one hand, securing rights both enumerated and unenumerated on the other hand, in other words, beginning to restore the Madisonian Constitution. And I'm very happy to say that when you look at uh, the debate today, uh, judges are much more uh, conversant with this approach to the Constitution than they were 20 and 30 years ago. And a lot of it comes from the writings and speeches and debates that we've done through the Federalist Society, through other organizations, and here at Cato to actually change the terms of the debate. Uh, David, g going back in time a little bit, when Cato moved to Washington, D.C., you were hired shortly thereafter, I believe? Actually, I was hired for a, uh, just before we moved to Washington. Oh, right. so, I spent nine months in San Francisco, which was nice. What, what was the impetus? 
Oh, the impetus was clearly that uh, a policy think tank ought to be in Washington. I mean, the Hoover Institution seems to have done pretty well. If you have a great university and uh, the weather of Silicon Valley, I guess you can get away with it. Uh, but we thought that a policy institute should be in Washington, not even entirely or primarily because this is where politicians are, but because this is where the journalists are who communicate ideas about politics and policy. So although Ed Crane had been determined to live in San Francisco after a few years, he came to the conclusion that, yes, what we're doing ought to be in Washington. And so we moved out here. Um, and... So I got to spend nine months in San Francisco, and if I'd spent uh, another nine months, I might never have left. <laughs> Nobody wanted to move back with us, so it was, it was just Ed and me who came back to Washington. <laughs> Everybody else quit rather than move out here. Okay, fair. So uh, the first official office of the Cato Institute, I believe, was a one-room apartment? <laughs> well, I wouldn't call that one official. But yes, <laughs> as we were moving to Washington, uh, we bought a nice house on Capitol Hill. Uh, people keep calling it a townhouse. It was not a townhouse. It was a freestanding house uh, that had been owned by the first librarian of Congress, and we like to think Jefferson would have visited that house. Uh, but there were various bureaucratic regulations involved in being able to take uh, control, uh, ownership of the house you've bought. So yes, by the time we actually got on airplanes, um, actually, I think Ed drove out, I, I flew, um, we got out here and we still were not allowed to possess the house and so we rented an apartment on Capitol Hill and most of us sat out in the sort of living room and the president's office was back in the, in the back room. And so um, I have heard people talk about being invited for, I think Jim Dorn said he was invited for an interview and they had to sit on the bed, um, do, <laughs> do the interview. I remember interviewing Jim Dorn in a restaurant, but maybe there was more than one interview. Um, <laughs> And during that period, our official address was 224 Second Street, the building we couldn't get into, which meant because they couldn't deliver the mail there, we had to go pick up the mail at the post office. And one day, Ed Crane had to go pick up the mail, and that's why we launched our project on postal privatization. <laughs> it, took, it took Ed one morning standing in line at the post office, and we started holding conferences and writing books on privatizing the postal service. So being a think tank in Washington, D.C., uh, looking to groups like AEI and Brookings for you know, let, let's understand how they do what they do uh, and try to present an alternative viewpoint using similar methods. What, what was the effectiveness early on, given that, that you arrived as the Reagan administration was in full swing? Well, uh, that's right. What was our effectiveness? We were pretty small then. Um, I think we started at that point laying a beachhead for libertarian ideas in policy work. And I, you can look back at pictures from that era and see various <clears throat> Reagan administration officials coming to events, not even to speak, but just to participate. I think one reason uh, is that there were very few free market events in Washington back then. These days, much harder to get people like that because there are many demands on their time. Um, but back then, I think it was, it was uh, harder to find opportunities. Plus, the townhouse was small and a little bit rickety, but it did have a lovely backyard. So during the spring and fall, you could have nice events out there, people like that. Um, we were quite critical of the Reagan administration because in foreign policy and social policy, we had significant disagreements with them. And on economic policy, of course, they didn't live up to what we thought Ronald Reagan had promised in all those speeches. But there were lots of people in the administration that we were able to work with. Uh, we were starting our social security privatization project and there were people interested in that. Um, I do remember once, I think it was when Hayek came to lunch at Cato and among the people we invited to the lunch were William Niskanen who was a senior uh, member of Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors and Mark Fowler, who was Reagan's chairman of the FCC, and one of the things that shocked us was they had never met. They met at Cato. And we thought, gee, wouldn't you think all the deregulators and free marketers holding senior positions in the Reagan administration would like meet and talk? But they first talked at the Cato Institute. All right, so you mentioned Bill Niskanen. What 
he essentially left the White House and came to Cato. Yes, that's right. And, and Ed tells a story about how he went to uh, Bill's office, I guess it was <clears throat> old executive office building next to the uh, uh, White House, and he said, you know, Bill's office was bigger than the Cato Institute. <laughs> Massive 19th century building, big offices. Um, <clears throat> Bill had come to our attention. He had been a distinguished professor at Berkeley and UCLA. Um, he had worked in the Defense Department back in the 60s, but he became chief economist of the Ford Motor Company, which I assume was the best paying job Bill Niskanen ever had. And unfortunately, that was the late 70s, and American business, at least some elements of it, were turning away from our historic free trade uh, approach and starting to demand protection. And apparently, there was a clash at Ford Motor Company, and some people were offended that the chief economist of Ford would not write arguments for protectionism. And so whether or not Bill Quitter was fired, I'm not entirely sure, but he... He left, um, and, and there was a Wall Street Journal article about that in 1979, and that's when he first really came to our attention uh, as something of a public figure, not just a public choice scholar. Um, then I think he taught for a year, and then he went into the Reagan administration. Uh, he had worked with Reagan way back in his gubernatorial years, and as we got to know him, he came here one day to give a talk. Um, let me say something about uh, what he did when he, when he gave a talk here. We got Larry White, who had a book out on free banking, to do a policy forum at Cato. And the commenter on White was supposed to be Bill Poole, another member of the Council of Economic Advisors who specialized in monetary policy. But Bill Poole woke up sick that morning, so he called his colleague Bill Niskanen, who was not a monetary economist, he was public choice fiscal economist, said, could you fill in for me? So Bill Niskanen came over to Cato and said, I'm here to take Bill Poole's place and comment on the book, which apparently he had read enough of that morning uh, to have a sense of it. And what I remember him saying was, I'm not an expert on monetary policy. And in most areas where I am expert, I see the benefits of free markets, decentralization, keeping the government out. In areas where I'm not an expert, I tend to revert to the conventional wisdom that you need government in this area. Now that I've read Lawrence White's book, I see a very good argument for getting the government out of money, which I hadn't really pondered before. But, he said, the lesson of this is the burden of proof ought to be on those who advocate government action. But in fact, the burden of proof is on those who want to change policy. So you will have to prove the case for getting rid of the Federal Reserve. They don't have to prove the case for keeping it. Um, that was pretty interesting talk. As the first Reagan administration came to an end, and we had seen Bill a few more times, we were asking him, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay in the administration? Um, because Bill was such an independent thinker, that they did not name him chairman of the council when the chairman left, and I think he was perhaps miffed at that. He was clearly the best economist in the administration, but they weren't sure he could be relied on. And so we wooed him to come over here, and I think he actually wanted to stay in Washington at that point. And he took a much smaller office uh, and, be and, and really, I think, added some intellectual gravitas to Cato that people... Uh, took us more seriously. Number one, some political gravitas. He had been Ronald Reagan's chief economist. Um, number two, um, intellectual gravitas because of all the writing he had done. A few years ago, I spoke with both, both uh, Lawrence Summers and Paul Volcker about Bill Niskanen. And Lawrence Summers said that uh, to, to this day, he considers Bill Niskanen the most honest man in Washington, which has certain drawbacks. Uh, if you are trying to operate in Washington. Has many advantages at <laughs> a think tank, definitely some drawbacks in government. And Paul Volcker said that he said what he thought without regard to whether or not it would cost him his job, which apparently it did at least twice. Uh, because in the Reagan administration, I know that he was somebody who uh, broke the rules with respect to uh, representing the president's view of the world uh, with respect to deficits, I believe, cost him... Uh, perhaps that job. I, I, I don't remember the details okay. on that. All I do right. remember once he said something uh, more critical than political economists are supposed to about some of the arguments for comparable worth in uh, gender pay. Uh -huh. 
Okay. Uh, so uh, I'm going to bring Ian in on this as well, but the Cato Institute in the late, mid to late 1980s began doing conferences in other countries. Uh, talk about the, the first one of those. Are you still looking at me? <laughs> I am still looking at you. But because I'm, I'm the only Ian one in old enough to remember there, all yes. these things. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, in, uh, uh, now let me get my year straight. Yes, in 1988, uh, we somehow decided to do a conference in China. Jim Dorn was organizing it. And imagine these days, you know, we didn't have, um, we didn't have email or anything. I think we had faxes. Um, so you could fax messages back and forth to China, but they're 12 hours off. So it was a very slow organizational process. But we decided to do a conference in China and take some American economists and legal theorists and political scientists. China was opening <clears throat> up in 1988, and we talked about free market economics and so on. Milton Friedman was part of the conference. Um, I remember at one point Milton uh, came to us and said, um, People keep stopping me in the hall, asking the same questions over and over. I mean, this is like after he'd given his speech. Can you like set up a press conference or something where I can take a lot of questions at once? And so we did that, and we have a wonderful picture um, of Milton sitting next to our translator, June May, who was a Chinese-American professor at UCLA. Um, really a lot of interest in what are free markets, what is the modern world like, what is the rule of law, those kinds of things. We had Chinese scholars. There's a new book out that talks about the influence of Western economists on changing China. And Friedman is a very big player, and they mention our conference, and they mention the sort of old-fashioned Maoist economist Pu Shan, who was on the same panel and stood up and rebutted some of what Friedman said. Um, so yes, that was, uh, that was a great conference in China. Um, and then in 1990, we decided to do the same thing in Russia, and we were able to arrange with an institute over there uh, to do a conference. In, in China, it had been with Fudan University. In Russia, it was with an institute. And under communism, you know, every organization was like a complete vertically integrated operation. So this institute not only has its own offices, but it has its own dormitory and its own hotel and its own conference facilities. Um, turns out this is not an efficient way to organize an economy. Um, but we held a conference uh, in Russia. Um, things were changing. Uh, I remember when we took a tour, when we, the, the day after the conference, some of us went to St. Petersburg, and it was still officially Leningrad, but our tour guide was calling it St. Petersburg. This is 1990. Things are starting to change. Milton Friedman did not want to go with us to Russia because... He thought Russia was a nuclear-armed enemy of the United States, and he didn't really feel comfortable uh, being part of them. may also have had to do with the fact that his parents had come from Russian-dominated territories. So anyway, he didn't want to go, but um, we had uh, a number of other distinguished scholars um, and a lot of people who were rising within <clears throat> Russia. Uh, the mayor of Moscow at the time was there, the mayor of St. Petersburg, Leningrad. Um, and one of the people who I think was there was Boris Nemtsov, who became a leader of the liberal forces in Russia and then was accidentally shot by some bandit while strolling near the Kremlin uh, one night a couple of years ago. Uh, they never found out who did it, um, but he had been one of the leading critics of the Putin regime, so it was a real coincidence. All right. Ian Vasquez, you were hired in... 1992 yep. at the Cato Institute, yep. and soon thereafter put, put on a big conference <clears throat> in, in Mexico City. Yeah, I was 12 years old. All right, time. fair. <laughs> That's right. I, I, would, I think it's fair to say that uh, Cato's international work or work internationally really began with those two conferences that, that Jim Dorn uh, put together. But then I, I think the international work of, of Cato really took off as... Uh, the collapse of, of communism and central planning all around the world became evident, and there was this real demand for our ideas. And, uh, and I think that what those two conferences that Jim Dorn showed uh, is it, it made evident that, that uh, Cato has a re real large influence because of its ability to bring the best thinkers together to talk about why and how uh, a country should reform. And so we... We repeated that experience in Mexico City in 1992 
to this day, that's the biggest conference that Cato has ever done. That's a conference that uh, Milton Friedman did agree to go to. And we brought together the, the most important uh, practitioners, reformers, and, and thinkers and economists from all of the Americas to talk about what was really in the man then. Uh, free market reforms, free trade with Mexico. Um, we put this conference together with Roberto Salinas, uh, Leon, our, our uh, libertarian colleague there who's, who's going to be with us uh, these next couple of days. And it was, a great, uh, it was a great experience, not just because we got a ton uh, of press, but at the time, um, the free market think tank movement was very nascent internationally. I mean, the, the think tank movement is really an American <coughs> phenomenon that is now spread <coughs> around the world. But at the time, it was really new. And so a lot of young, promising, uh, very smart uh, policy entrepreneurs and economists and intellectuals showed up at that conference from all over Latin America. And I, I think it's also fair to say that that was the beginning of a, of a, a network that has lasted and strengthened, uh, has lasted to this day and strengthened since then, uh, of free market think tanks and free market uh, thinkers throughout the, the region who have had a big influence on their uh, public policy debates and actually on reforming the, their countries. And that, by the way, that experience we've now repeated in uh, so many parts of, of the world. Um, so that was one of, that's one of the, uh, the influences that Cato has too when it put, puts together these, these kinds of uh, conferences. We discover people that uh, are doing great work and in a sense give them intellectual support and, and even more participate and collaborate with them on, on projects. Uh, I remember uh, uh, Friedman had the same, the same problem in, in Mexico City. I mean, he was really greeted like a rock star there, and the entire press from, from the region was there asking him over and over the same questions. It was, I, I was impressed uh, with his ability to answer questions like, uh, why don't uh, price and wage controls work? I'm sure that this isn't the first time he had to answer that. And he answered it in a very, for those of you who knew him, he was very calm and uh, charming and p polite and very effective in doing that. And that was a good lesson for me because I was just starting out. Uh, I, I knew then that a lot of this work is going to have to be repeating things that <laughs> seem to us to be obvious, but then backing them up with, with really good, good work. We had a press conference there. And uh, I'll never forget uh, that he said at the press conference several things, but three of them stood out. And, and these were the ones that were all over the newspapers for the next several weeks, for which he was roundly criticized. One is, you've got to privatize Pemex, the state-owned oil company. Two, you've got to abandon the war on drugs. It's a, it's a failed policy, and it's a disastrous uh, for Mexico. And three, you've got to move away from this crazy pegged exchange rate system is going to, because it's going to cause you problems. And at the time, uh, the entire establishment of Mexico was against it. Even the people who were in the business community in favor of promoting free trade and so on, they didn't want drug legalization. Privatizing Pemex was absolutely taboo. And of course, the business community was in favor of a stable exchange rate, so they were in favor of the government sort of pegging it. Well. The next day, the newspaper, the leading financial newspaper, uh, had this headline, Milton Friedman. He has, no he has no clue about Mexican history. And it was just a complete, of course, a couple of years later, they had the big uh, peso crisis. And it was due exactly to the types of criticisms that, uh, that Milton was, was making at the time. But when it happened, everybody's reaction was, this is the fault of the free market, and nobody saw it coming. <laughs> Which was a good opportunity and lesson for me too, because it was that episode turned out to be the first of the big financial crises and the big bailouts from the Treasury Department and the, and the IMF that then went on to happen in Argentina and Brazil and Russia and East Asia, Korea and Thailand and, and so on. In a few a few years later, and um, we were critical of the bailout of Mexico. Uh, at the time, and we were one of the few groups that were critical of it for a lot of reasons, including that it creates more hazard. But then, as these problems started to happen all around the world, 
more and more people saw it as a, as a failed policy. And I wrote uh, Milton Friedman a, a letter, I think it must have been in 1997 or, or so, and I said, I'll never forget that you, uh, that you said uh, such and such at the press conference. It turns out to be absolutely true. Here's a clip from the newspaper that said, you don't understand anything about Mexican history. You probably don't have it in your files because it's in Spanish, but here you go, thanks <coughs> a lot. And then he wrote me back and said, thanks very much. I, I, in fact, I didn't know that this, that this existed and it goes in my files. I really appreciate it. Yes, this is, uh, this is predictable, but you know, the Mexican newspaper is right. I don't know anything about Mexican history. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he said, I don't have to know anything about Mexican history. I had a discussion with him about it later. And um, that's, you know, that's one of the, one of the other lessons um, that, that uh, I learned from, from him. He was fond, uh, uh, because a lot of times when you, I have now experienced this too many times, when you travel around the world and you say, well, what you should do here is, you know, liberalize and you should open trade and you should do this. The people who are opposed that say, well, you know, Maybe that works in the United States, or maybe that works in Chile, but this is, country is totally different, you know? And, and, and by the way, you don't know anything about this country, so that can't be. And Friedman used to say, um, well, um, if your son is, is sick in a hospital and uh, you want to, to cure him, do you want to call somebody who knows your son really well, or do you want to call a good doctor? Yeah. <laughs> he had a lot of lessons like that, um, but that's been one of the privileges of, of working here. In any event, um, that was a good experience, and then we, we've gone on to expand uh, that kind of uh, exercise all around the world in, in so many different countries. I was going to ask about Caracas. You've done multiple conferences in, yeah. in Caracas. What, uh, how has that changed from your first to your most recent? Well, I mean, the thing about it is I've been tr actually traveling to Venezuela for a long time. The, the first time <clears throat> I was there was as a, as a child uh, in 1979. Uh, so I've actually been able to, to, see, to see it uh, change. And even then, the price of gasoline was cheaper than water at that point, which tells you that a lot is wrong in a country like that. Um, Basically, I would just summarize Venezuela as being the classic case of the curse of natural resources. It's a country rich in, in petroleum that becomes impoverished and has all sorts of problems precisely because all of those resources are, are monopolized by, by government. Uh, when Hugo Chavez was elected, I went uh, actually with Mario Vargas Llosa, the Peruvian novelist, to, to, to Peru for a conference and uh, with a number of classical liberals, and Hugo Chavez was already denouncing us. He said, you know, the liberals are coming and we're gonna receive them with lead. Lead meaning bullets. So we had the, from the very beginning, had to have um, bodyguards as we walked around, but even, but, but at that time it was okay. I mean, you know, you just, that was like a precaution. Um, what happened in, in Venezuela was this. They were a democracy that uh, where all the elite actually believed in socialist ideas. So if you look at uh, a graph of Venezuela in, ter in terms of economic freedom, you see that under democracy, they started losing economic freedom rapidly. And when Chavez arrives, it goes down even faster. So I view Hugo Chavez as pretty much a continuation of what had been happening before, but in an accelerated uh, way. Uh, so. We did, uh, we've done several conferences there, but things really deteriorated as the Chavez regime uh, uh, lasted. And one time, I think it was around 2009 or 2010, we held a uh, Cato University for students uh, in a town outside of, uh, close to Caracas, but in the state of Miranda. And the reason we did it there, because by now things were kind of hairy there, the reason we did it there, it was on a ranch and it was very nice, was because the governor of Miranda was uh, uh, Mr. Capriles, who was an opposition figure. And at the time, the governors could actually uh, control their own police forces. So he decided that he would provide a security with the state police. So we said, okay. And we held the conference there. And on the very first morning of the conference, Chavez sent the National Guard to shut us down. And it was uh, a really tricky situation because here we are trying to hold 
hold uh, seminars about uh, economic theory and uh, philosophy and libertarian philosophy, and you have the National Guard soldiers right outside the gate trying to shut us down, facing face-to-face -face with the state uh, soldiers. It was kind of like a, a metaphor of, of, of the country. And then they sent the, their ministers of education there to try to officially shut us down. So we had a standoff for a long time, and the kids were immediately putting this out on Twitter. And then within uh, 15 minutes or, or less, the uh, wire services all over Latin America were reporting that Cato was under siege. <coughs> which was nice because that's essentially what saved us. And they were accusing us of, of uh, trying to establish a university in Caracas without actually applying for the permits to establish a university. And we said, well, just call it Cato University. Is that, is that a felony in Venezuela? I think you could probably get shot for that. So, uh, but it was, it, it was surreal because I don't know if anybody here has been there, but they have seven or eight uh, propaganda state televisions there. So for the whole rest of the week, they were doing the most absurd propaganda uh, that we were part of the CIA effort to do overthrow the government, that we were training people there to, to carry out a coup. In any event, um, we've gone back uh, several times. We, we had uh, the last one of these sessions a few years ago, and the deterioration has been unbelievable. I've I write a column in the newspaper in Peru, a weekly column, and uh, for the past several years, I look back and I saw the columns I wrote about Venezuela, and they all start like this. Venezuela is on the point of collapse at any moment now. It's, and I think that Venezuela is on the point of collapse right now. It is so bad uh, that it's hard to believe it's going to get worse. But uh, It's also hard to believe in a lot of these regimes how long the brink of collapse can last. So to, just to sum it up, um, we were very uh, much in touch with all, all the important opposition people there and the, and the libertarians. And whereas before, people didn't believe in our ideas, and that's what got them in trouble, now they appreciate it more than ever. All right, let, let's talk about uh, everyone's good friend, uh, President Bill Clinton. What were the uh, opportunities and challenges presented by uh, his election? He, pitched himself as a, as a new Democrat, somebody who was going to take certain ideas seriously. A few years in to his administration, he said proudly that the era of big government was over. How'd that go? You know, in a way, you look back at the Carter administration and the Clinton administration, and it seems like, maybe Roger would agree with this, that at the time, it seemed like they had a lot of terrible ideas. Carter's energy fascism, Clinton's health care plan, Clinton's view that the whole economy could be planned like a five-year plan. Um, and yet, they weren't able to get a lot of those things done. And so what do we remember from the Carter administration? Deregulation. I think of airlines and trucking. Some of my friends think of the deregulation of craft brewing. Um, from the Clinton administration, NAFTA, welfare reform. Uh, getting the economy into surplus, the budget into surplus. Um, so apparently the American system blocks a lot of those things. In the Clinton administration, we had a very heavy investment in arguing against Hillary Clinton's health care plan. And we argued against the idea that you could take 500 bureaucrats and divide them into 15 working groups and 37 task forces, and in the matter of 90 days, rewrite one-eighth of the American economy. But we also argued against the substance of what they wanted to do. Uh, we published, uh, just before the Clinton administration, I think, a 700-page book called Patient Power, which was how to move the healthcare system back toward patients being in charge. And then when that happened, when, when Hillary Care came along, we knew that not many people are going to read a 700-page book. So we turned it into a 100-page mass market paperback and then a 20-page pamphlet. Um, and we distribute hundreds of thousands of copies of those. And obviously, there were a lot of people opposing Hillary Care, but as you recall, it never got to a vote. Then, throughout the Clinton administration, there were some striking examples of the arrogance of the imperial presidency, the insouciance about the constitutional limitations on the presidency <clears throat> and the federal government. And Roger should talk about Clinton and the rule of law. Yes, and I'll also talk about the um, sort of mischief that we are engaged in that has um, led to some of this um, change of 
climate of ideas. Going back to the conferences, um, David, you spoke about the 1990 Moscow conference. That was October of 1990, and we were seeing the signs of collapse. Remember, the wall had fallen in November of 89, but the Soviet Union continued until August of 1991. We saw that at the Moscow conference in um, 1990, October. But then we had a second conference, remember, in 1991, in April of 1991, at the Oktoberskaya Hotel, of all places. And one of the things we did there was bring with us a number of lapel buttons that said Cato Institute, and then around the top and the bottom it said, free markets, private property. And all the maids in the hotel were wearing those buttons <laughs> as, as we were leaving, the party apparatchiks were coming in and they saw the maids with all these buttons on them. We knew that the end was nigh. And so, <laughs> so it, indeed it was only a few months after that that, um, that the Soviet Union collapsed. So this is the kind of insinuating of ideas that we have done over the years that have produced real results. Now to go back to the Clinton years, there let's remember, and I'm gonna give you a, a, a couple of examples there. Um, Hillary Care came on the scene almost immediately when Bill took office. Um, and that led to the Gingrich Revolution of 1994. Remember the contract with America and so forth. And for the first time, uh, after 40 years in the desert, the Republicans took over the House, which David had said back in the 70s, that was all but unthinkable. Sure enough, the Republicans did take over the contract with America. Some provisions were enacted. Uh, the one that main one that was not was, of course, term limits. That was too much for Gingrich and company. But what we did then was start something right after the, the, the 90, 1995 Congress took, uh, took office, start something called the Constitutional Caucus, which was 100 strong in 1995. Right from the beginning, I was in the forefront of leading that with people like J.D. Hayworth, John Shattuck, uh, both of Arizona, uh, Sam Brownbeck, a new congressman from Kansas, uh, Bob Barr from Georgia, and a few others leading it. And they actually had meetings of 100 members of Congress to talk about the Constitution and what it is that we're not authorized to do under the Constitution. I lectured before them a couple of times, but by the time we got to the end of 1995, that sort of came to an end when, as, as I recall, Gingrich had on the plane, he, got, uh, um, he was put out by the fact that he wasn't up in first class with Bill. Uh, but was back with the reporters or something like that. And so that's another e example of insinuating the idea. Then again, we did the same thing after the 2010 election, which was a, a um, repudiation of Obama's uh, uh, actions, uh, in, um, especially in promoting um, Obamacare. We did the same thing with... Um, uh, working with the Tea Party, which had come along during the first two years of the Obama administration. And when Congress opened its session in uh, 2011, uh, the very day that they had their first meeting, I had a piece uh, in the Wall Street Journal entitled Congress Rediscovers the Constitution. That was the day that the House read the Constitution out loud the first time in its history that they had ever done something so heretical as that. Roger, I think. <laughs> Roger has sort of forgotten my question, but I ended my question <laughs> with the reference to Clinton and the rule of law because Roger edited a book called right. The Rule of Law in the Wake of Clinton. One of the best edited books I ever saw here at Cato because a whole lot of edited collections, you may have noticed, you invite 10 people to write and they write something and then you put them together and they may or may not go together very much. Roger sat down, as I recall, and sort of outlined 
what would the case about Clinton and the rule of law look like and then got scholars to write on each one of the points that ought to be in there. So it really reads more like a narrative brief than a lot of edited collections. However, and, it, there was some rewriting that was done too to make it read that way. <laughs> but of course. And then of course in the Bush administration we had to publish the paper <clears throat> Power Surge, the uh, uh, I forget what the subtitle was, The Constitutional Abuses of George W. Bush. And somehow, I guess, nobody had the energy to produce a volume large enough to cover the constitutional abuses of the Obama administration. But uh, if I recall correctly, uh, the idea that was promoted in patient power were medical savings accounts, yes. which ended up being a bit of a stowaway on a uh, piece of healthcare legislation, and then eventually became the health savings accounts that we're fighting to preserve today. Well, yes, that's right. And, and those of you who are in business, this is on you, because Congress actually did create the option for health savings accounts, which would have gotten people back into the mode of, I have to pay for my own healthcare unless I have extraordinary expenses. Um, and businesses did not adopt it. Uh, if a lot of large businesses and small businesses had adopted health savings accounts as an alternative to uh, standard low deductible uh, health insurance, then we might have changed the pricing structure of health care. Uh, but that didn't happen. And I think with Obamacare, it became very difficult after that to pursue health savings accounts. You still could. We have a health savings account here at Cato, but it, it made many more restrictions on it. So the window was from whenever that bill was passed that had HSAs in it until Obamacare. Caleb, uh, you asked also about things that we've, of a practical sort that we've accomplished. Well, of course, one of the most important things we accomplished was the recognition of the Second Amendment as protecting individual liberties and the right to keep and bear arms. And no one was more important in that than our chairman, Bob Levy, who I see walked in a little late and missed my opening remarks. <laughs> I, uh, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say he missed well, them, well, Roger. Uh, he, I, I hired Bob Levy, you may remember. Uh, well, to hear Bob Levy tell it, he but, bribed his way onto being well, a scholar at yeah, the Cato well, Institute. Yeah, I hired him, he used to work for me, and then he became chairman of Cato, and now I work for him. And so there's no justice in the world. Right, but, so, he, but he is the man who is more than anyone else responsible for conceiving, uh, funding, and uh, negotiating some very delicate uh, uh, negotiations with the NRA and other uh, people to um, see this thing all the way through to the Supreme Court, as a result of which we now have for the first time in the nation's history, an understanding of what the Second Amendment really stands for. They now call it James Madison and Bob Levy's Second there Amendment. There you go, yes. <laughs> what else? We're here in 2017. And, well, let uh, me say something about sure. the entrepreneurial aspect of working at a think tank. I was thinking of this as Roger was elaborating on our Russian activities. Another thing we did there toward the end of the Soviet era was we published the book Solidarność Zivolnosia, Solidarity with Liberty, and smuggled it into Poland. Um, and I think it was shortly after that book that Milton Friedman sent us several chapters of Free to Choose, I think it was, that had been translated into Russian by a graduate student as a project for her Russian literature class. And he just said, you know, here, here are some chapters of my book translated into Russian. And when you're an entrepreneur, your job is to combine factors of production. Sometimes here, even at Cato, we have a plan. We're going to do this. And then 9-11 happens or then Hillary care happens. And it's like Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, in this case, well, I don't know what plan we had at that time, but we had not planned to publish a book in Russian and smuggle it into Russia. But then these translated copies of Friedman essays, and I think there was a Hayek essay too, I don't know if that was separate, came into our possession. And like good entrepreneurs, we said, oh, okay, we have this new factor of production we hadn't been counting on. What can we do with it? Well, 
let's put them together in a book and let's try to get them into Russia. And so we did that. And uh, in both cases, it was very hard to know what was going on. You would give copies of books to people who said they were going to Poland or they were going to Russia or they knew someone over there or they could take a box on the airplane with them. But we did hear, we, the Polish embassy said it was insane to distribute these ideas in Poland. And two years later, I assume the ambassador was replaced. Um, so we might have had some effect getting those things in there. But part of that is sometimes you discover that a scholar is available and would like to move to Washington or would like to join Cato or whatever. And even though you didn't have a plan, we did not have a plan to do a center on judicial philosophy or, or constitutional studies. But when Roger Pilon came to us with an idea, we were smart enough to say, yes, that's a good way to spend some money. Let's do that. And that's happened other times during the uh, uh, 40 years that we've been doing this. So we try to have plans, especially now that we've uh, gotten a couple of CEOs in the past few years from the business world. They want a strategic plan, but you never know when some opportunity is going to happen. Yes, and David, you spoke about translations. We also have translated this constitution into both Spanish and, uh, and Arabic. Arabic, yes, yes, and that, of course, was a post-9-11, right. hey, we've got to start talking about ideas in right. this part of the world. And, and uh, after we had uh, uh, Floyd Abrams here uh, to talk about um, the situation in the rest of the world with respect to the First Amendment of free speech and free press, and comparing it, for example, to Canada, we're planning to translate the, this into Canadian so that... Uh, <laughs> As a dazzling feat of bravura, Ilya will translate it from Spanish into Canadian. There you go. <laughs> All right, so, you know, where we stand now, what are some of the unique challenges that Cato has to deal with? And, and what are some things that, at least maybe distant on the horizon, that uh, all of us here should be thinking about? Uh, can I start on that one? Uh, with respect to the Supreme Court, the issue, now that we are up to full strength again, and now that Neil Gorsuch is on board, uh, I am very hopeful that gradually we are going to start moving in the right direction there, more than we have even in the past. He is an old friend of Cato. He, uh, in fact, uh, published a study on term limits for us in 1992, after he finished clerking for um, Judge uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, he came over uh, and in my office, we talked for a good couple of hours about uh, legal philosophy. He, of course, went on to Oxford to do his uh, doctorate in legal philosophy and in natural law theory in particular. So he is in many ways uh, the best of Scalia while not sharing some of the uh, problems we had with Scalia. In particular, he was uh, very petulant, and uh, th that sometimes doesn't work on the Supreme Court. As uh, Justice Brennan used to say, there's only one thing that counts up here, five, five. That is to say, you've got to have five justices. And uh, Neil Gorsuch is as uh, smooth as butter, as you saw in the hearings. He is someone we really look forward to, to being not only uh, politically, uh, not only legally astute, but and philosophically astute, but politically astute as well in his dealings with his colleagues on the court. So there's one area that we are going to continue to work. I would like one day to have him over here to give one of the Simon lectures for you, all you, the information. The next B. Kenneth Simon lecture will be given by Phil um, Hamburger at Columbia University uh, whose book is uh, entitled, Is Administrative Law um, uh, Illegal? And he answers it with a resounding um, yes. And um, administrative law is place where we're going to see the most changes in the future, I believe. It is where most of our law is written, not by Congress, but in the 450 administrative agencies in the executive branch. That is where the attention it seems to me in the next few years is going to be directed, and Neil Gorsuch is really right with us all the way on that. All right, David, Ian. Well, I mean, I'll be very brief. I think we're running out of time. I think the biggest challenge internationally is the threat of authoritarian populism in places from China to Russia to Turkey, including uh, uh, the rise of those sentiments and even political movements in uh, Europe 
and other countries that are advanced as well. And we're going to have talk about that at a panel this afternoon. Including perhaps even the United States. Perhaps so. <laughs> I think one of the obvious biggest issues facing the uh, industrial democracies is the seeming inability to rein in the ever-growing welfare state, transfer payments, very difficult challenge that almost nobody has dealt with except in a crisis, which hopefully will not come. If you say what's out there that is only dimly on the horizon, well, there are all sorts of things. Um, will robotics make all of our uh, jobs redundant, and how will we react to that? Um, are middle-class white Americans, in fact, having shorter life expectancies? And what, what, what policy uh, options and conditions have led to that? What can we do about that? If we cannot rein in the welfare state, how can we keep liberal society going? Are there forms of deregulation and the rule of law that can work around a large welfare state? Um, all of these things are going to be challenges and the challenge of the United States staying out of unnecessary wars. <clears throat> All right. I'll say it once again. Welcome to Cato 40. And thank you. Thank our panel here. That was David Bowes, Ian Vasquez, and Roger Pallon marking the beginning of Cato 40, the celebration of the Cato Institute's 40 years of advancing liberty. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. Send comments and questions to cbrown at cato.org and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.